0: In Sub-Saharan Africa, people often identify more with their ethnic group than they identify with their nation state. But to what extent can the history of an ethnic group predict economic outcomes? And how significant is this compared to political institutions of nation states? On today's episode, we explore the relationship between how intensely agricultural an ethnic group was generations ago and what this means for members of the ethnic group today. You're listening to the Success Project podcast series. The NYU Development Research Institute, DRI, was founded by William Easterly and Yao Nyarko. DRI, Understanding the Barriers to Growth and Development. I'm Will Komperl and here to talk with me today is Stelios Mikolopoulos, Associate Professor of Economics at Brown University, And co-author with Louis Putterman and David Weil of the paper, The Influence of Ancestral Lifeways on Individual Economic Outcomes in Sub-Saharan Africa. Salios, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure, Will. So that term ancestral lifeways, um, your paper looks at how the ancestral lifeways of ethnic groups across Sub-Saharan Africa can predict education and wealth outcomes of descendants today. What do you mean by the term ancestral lifeways in the context of the paper?
1: okay so well let me take a step back before answering this question and just um, make put it in the context of why are we living in Africa and why we're looking at ethnic groups so uh, I've been kind of obsessed with understanding what is the uh, why ethnic groups are very important is a salient uh, feature of identity uh, for m- many individuals in Africa uh, so if you actually, t- Try to think about what is more important uh, for an average individ- African uh, today. Uh, and you would open a random survey where they are asked the question: Okay, who are you, you identify with most? Is it the state because you're in Kenya, or is it your ethnic group because you're a Kikuyu? And you would be surprised that uh, the average African would actually tell you that uh, most of the time he would identify more with the ethnic group that he's, uh, uh, you know, he's affiliated with, rather than the state. So this kind of gives this gives you the you know, the kind of the understanding that if you are to look about differences across individuals, and then country-level characteristics may be important, but less so than the ethnic uh, level characteristics. Now, and what do you mean by ethnicity? Like why, um, you know, okay, ethnic identity, of course, there is a big debate whether it's constructed or whether there's something primordial that this comes from the history. Uh, in this paper, we kind of take a stand that if you are to understand about the formation of ethnicities in the past, you should really think about those groups as uh, being best at uh, taking advantage and exploiting the land that they are The ancestors used to live, so you know if you were in a place that was good for, uh, you know, grazing uh, uh, and was good for was good for pastoral activities, naturally, uh, you know, the group of people that would reside in this place would become pastoralists. Whereas in other places that it would be more fertile due to climatic or uh, temperature, uh, climatic or soil characteristics, naturally, these groups of people there would find out that the best thing to do would be to cultivate various types of crops, and hence this would give rise to agriculturalists. So, you know, at a very broad level, you could think you know, variation across groups, in the formation of groups would come just because of our ancestral human capital, what our ancestors used to do. You know, I come from places that, you know, uh, basically in the northern part of my village, uh, in, in, you know, far away, not, not not very far from my village, but like a few uh, hundred kilometers away from my village, the terrain is such that basically pastoralists are, are dominating. So I'm from Greece. Uh, I come from the, the valley, so, you know, this is where agriculturalists are. So this is kind of was my uh, understanding or the way that I wanted to view uh, ethnic groups or linguistic groups uh, in Africa? So one way to think about your ancestors is really, uh, you know, five generations ago, like right in the beginning of the colonial era. What most of your, uh, you know, if you were to trace your lineages, uh, 100, 100 years, 150 years ago, what your ancestors would uh, mostly be doing? So ethnicity is really like a vehicle that will allow us, that allows us in this paper to get us back few generations and see what your uh, you know, great-great-grandparents used to do.
0: So, your paper finds that an individual today, if they come from an ethnic group that before the colonial period practiced more agriculturally, uh, they're predicted to have higher income and be more educated. So what do you think, uh, what are the potential explanations for this? This seems like a really powerful result when you hold things constant, like the, the nation-state political institutions or gender things, things that we typically think are powerful variables in determining someone's wealth and education outcomes.
1: Right. Uh, so, you know, I guess this is, uh, you know, it, it's a paper that it has been crafted uh, f- the last year, the year and a half. So we're kind of comfortable to, you know, get out the message that uh, we have found a strong pattern in the data. That is what exactly you explained. Uh, if you trace your your ancestry to a group that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, used to rely more in agriculture, then you are kind of the lucky uh descendant you will be more educated today and you will be more wealthy and this is a pattern that is not as you say driven by uh, of course comparing kind of villages that live in the pastoral areas versus villages that now have become urbanized and they are uh, you know kind of in the capital city so we now we look within the same village within the same uh, basically district in you know pick your favorite capital uh, of africa or an african country and you could feel still find the same pattern and you only focus on individuals that have moved out of their where the homeland of their ethnicity, is correct? Right. Right? So this is basically looking at guys that have now are no longer at least, you know, let's be careful there, right? Because the, the data is what they are. And the individuals are interviewed at a given point in time and they would answer, look, currently I live in this place. We don't really know how much connected they are to their place of origin or where, where they go back and forth or anything like that, but we know that they are away. But in a sense, things that would make um, an ethnic group perhaps wealthy
0: centuries ago, um you're taking them out of that environment because yes. because they are a mover and so it's not that an agricultural society 200 years ago that that person in the same location is going to be wealthy you're you're removing them from it and saying that there's still a persistent trait and that's and that and that's the big finding right right right,
1: right. so so in some sense it would not be very surprising to say that look places in the past that used to do more agriculture. Eventually they moved into bigger cities, cities attracted more talent, more industry. Eventually, you know, if you were lucky enough to live in this place for long, you would ride the wave of industrialization. You would be observed today to be more educated or more wealthy. We're saying something more, let's, uh, you know, more forceful that actually it is big. Be- Your ancestors used to do agriculture and only agriculture and the traits that they like, they transmitted you characteristics. And our think, our thought process, as it evolves, like it's an evolving uh, process. Actually, how to think about this pattern, uh, it, it implies that you know you were given characteristics like uh, you know the way that uh, your ancestors uh, used to you know to be more patient, being doing agriculture, used to uh, do constant uh, work uh, like farming. It's it's a much more repetitive process than uh, um, you know uh, herding. Uh, herding inheriting like your property can be easily taken away from you. So, you know, there are anthropologists and uh, uh, social psychologists that have made the point that, look, if you live in an environment that your wealth, your basically means of subsistence can be stolen in a heartbeat, uh, then you would like to inculcate to your offspring uh, and a trait that you would be you know, be ready to defend your property. So that this probably would give you uh, more uh, ready to, to be violent. And so, you know, that you are, uh, uh, you know, strong enough that, you know, your herd will stay with you. But, but the opposite of that, I
0: guess, in an agricultural society where your belongings are relatively more secure is that you'll be maybe more likely to trust or cooperate. And those are things that we think are conducive to growth today.
1: That's true. That also goes with population density, right? That, uh, you know, we think of agricultural societies are significantly denser than pastoral societies. So if you are over hundreds of years, you basically have to stay in a given place and you have to learn to interact with you know, um, many people around you uh, that will basically uh, end up giving you different ways of interaction or let's say non-cognitive skills uh, compared to basically being in an environment that is very sparsely populated, that you would spend quite a bit of your time by your own, uh, you know, making a living and uh, herding your uh, animals.
0: And so that idea that a pastoral society might be more hostile because they need to protect their belongings, it's interesting then that that trait is passed down through generations because you would think that in a new environment, sort of, there would be a blank slate. So do you have any idea through what channel? I mean, I I don't think you're going to imply that it's a genetic thing, but is is the culture really that strong that the characteristics of being pastoral-agricultural really trickle down through so many generations? It seems to be a pretty remarkable finding. I would think that as time goes on, there's more
1: convergence, but this sort of suggests divergence. Right, so I don't know if it suggests divergence or not. So you have to think about Africa. It's not like, a a society or a continent that has modernized uh, dramatically the last uh, hundred years, like, uh, you know, pick your other favorite continent. So when we really say that your great-great-grandfather was mostly a pastoral guy, a herder, or your great-great-grandfather was a peasant a farmer, we really mean this. So it's really that by 1850, when we have kind of the first basic understanding uh, of uh, what different uh, groups were doing in different parts of Africa, they are still in, let's say, uh, an agricultural or or a pastoral regime. So it's not that we are looking at like, you know, thousands of years later that, you know, it would make kind of relatively hard to believe that these traits can be transmitted um, and, uh, you know, without being basically diluted. Now, this takes me to the second point that Ethnicity is, a, is still a very salient uh, aspect of, uh, in, in, in Africa. For example, your heritage as a group is, is quite strong. So that it is not basically, um, you know, we have not moved to a post, let's say, uh, post-ethnic or post-group-specific uh, regime. So whatever your parents used to say, um, or, you know, again, we don't have data of, of exactly what parents are saying pastoral kids versus parents to agricultural kids, but we kind of have their uh, reaction today uh, when they are basically um, given a qualification by the uh, interviewee that, you know, was he hostile towards you? Was he patient during the interview? Again, we have, this is very soft information, right? It's not really- We can only uh, speculate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really like a, the, we have a pie, I think, and the pie is the pattern that we observe in the data, and then we try to put a cherry on it and say, look, it's consistent with various, Hypotheses that have been aired in the literature of why different backgrounds might lead to different outcomes and here look this here is some evidence which is consistent or less consistent with this pattern how, how significant is this uh, this variable of
0: agricultural ancestry is it one of you know a, a thousand variables little ones or is it really a driving factor I mean it it seems really interesting or or Uh, Absurd maybe to think that our economic outcomes today are determined by what our ancestors did 150 years ago And maybe that's just uh, speaking from some sort of idealistic point of view where everyone has a blank slate But you know, how powerful is this compared
1: to a lot of the other factors? Almost a third of the variation in individual outcomes with respect to wealth and education Can be attributed somehow to group level characteristics. Now which of these again now Okay, I tell you that okay Belonging to a group or identifying with a group is important for the type of outcomes that you have today. Now, the second step is to ask, but of course, you know, uh, you know, every group can have many, many different characteristics. Okay, we don't have the universe of group-specific characteristics, but at least among the pre-colonial features that we observe in the data, and we observe, you know, characteristics like, was this group a polygynous group? Like, was it practicing polygyny? Was it a, a group that uh, basically was coming from a strong um, state society? Was, uh, or a group that uh, was, uh, you know, having uh, different inheritance rules or allowing for some inheritance of some type? And that's
0: trying to isolate the channel that this might be. Yes, to?
1: that's trying kind of to tell you, look, in the legacy of your group, there can, many, there can be many different dimensions. I guess in our way of thinking, we're a bit... Marxian. We say, look, first of all, the way that you manage to survive and make a living, in this case, whether you are an agriculturalist or a pastoralist or a hunter-gatherer, will basically shape also all subsequent characteristics that uh, uh, this uh, group will actually uh, adopt. Like whether you will be polygynous, whether you will, what type of societal arrangement you will adopt, what type of institutional arrangements you will adopt. So in, in this analysis, when you label a particular ethnic group as being uh, a certain level of agriculturalist, what what year are you sort of making that label? So this data uh, comes from uh, uh, Murdoch. Murdoch uh, is a kind of an anthropologist uh, that has put together an, an impressive collection of uh, uh, different sources, missionaries, military outposts colonizers basically going through Africa, early explorers, and uh, so basically he, he takes all this information together and kind of systematizes it. We're talking really about end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, that this, uh, the information that we have is mostly representative of, the, you know, of what they're doing right around 100 years ago. Because I would think even in those last 100 years,
0: when you identify a certain individual as being part of an ethnic group, that leaves five maybe six generations and over that period of time there must have been some significant making of babies across ethnic groups that would you know how strongly can an individual identify with just one ethnic group or are you you know it it could be a weak connection between multiple instead
1: of one that's a fantastic uh, question it really asks the question okay what is an ethnicity and what is an ethnic identity is it like totally constructed like you asked these days in this survey and they what is your identity? I think identity. And they answered X. If you were to ask them another day, would they answer Y? You know, all these are great and valid questions. If identity is a construct that, you know, basically it's a hat that you wear every day and different days you wear different hats, then this would basically make almost impossible to find any relationship between what this ethnographer has put down, um, you know, a bunch of data points 100 years ago and your individual outcomes today. So it seems, you know, know, it's not that I deny that there is a certain level of uh, construction into what type of identity you, you get to adopt, but there is also another part that seems to be kind of rooted into... Um, you know, kind of very stable, let's say, transmission mechanism over time.
0: So the reality in rural Sub-Saharan Africa is such that we can be pretty confident that when an individual is, is uh, given an ethnic identity
1: in this survey, it's, it's pretty strong. Again, this is what we would like to think. We don't have the data to follow the individ- the same individual over time and actually tell you that, look, this is a stable trait and he does not change it. Basically, you know, we can tell that if you are born into a household that both parents are of the same group, 99% you will answer the survey that you actually belong to the same group as your parents. So we can tell you these things now, You know, giving a fuller picture of the formation of identity and evolution of identity, ethnic identity in Africa, it's a different project.
0: So what do you think is the most important takeaway from this type of analysis, especially as it
1: pertains to the development context? This is a difficult question. Let me answer it this way. Poor countries in the 1960, they remain poor in 2010. Rich countries in 1960, they're consistently richer in 2010. Of course, the globe, the world has become richer, but the relative ranking within the world is almost basically identical to what it was 50 or 60 years ago. What this tells me? It tells me that basically, if we would like to understand development, then you would like basically to allow in your tool set, a richer understanding of variation in economic activity as of 50 years ago. So starting from this observation, it tells me that history is super important for determining basically initial differences in income per capita that seem to persist over the latest era of modernization, which is like the last 50 years. So in this respect, I think what we bring into the debate is kind of early occupational specialization, but not at the country level, but let's say at the line age level, can have a great influence on what offspring of this line aids how they well they perform today and hence one should take this into account so if you would like to understand how ethnic inequality emerges unless you understand the occupational background of different groups you would only get half the picture of what like how ethnic inequality comes about and once you understand it then you can correct it by appropriate policies placing more uh, schooling or placing more uh, develop, uh, you know, development projects into the, the right places and the right people.
0: So if I understand you correctly, you're, you're not only saying that history is, is very important, but also that sometimes if we just look at that, that national level, it obscures all of the important things that determine your educational wealth outcomes um, for something like an ethnic group.
1: That's true. And particularly for Africa, that is uh, where I, I, I have more of an expertise, I would uh, m- probably make an even stronger statement that if you really care about individual welfare or regional or understanding differences in the regional disparities in income, within countries, you should not look stro- hard at country level policies, but you should focus on the variation that comes at the local level. At the local level, you can have many actors. One actor that is very important is really the ethnic group that you belong to. And it has many different dimensions that that belonging to an ethnic group can shape uh, your uh, individual economic well-being.
0: My guest today has been Stelios Mikolopoulos. Stelios, thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot, Will. This episode of the Success Project podcast series was recorded at the DRI offices in New York, New York, hosted by Will Kompernel and produced by Carmen Cuesta Visit nyudri.org to hear other episodes in our series, read Celios's paper, and learn more about the Success Project. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation, The opinions expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation.